your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of the living God. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Now, living God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that the voice of Christ would be made known to us, that we may be able to discern truth from error in the world and our lives, but even as we hear your word, Guide us, guard us, protect us. We pray for spirit-wrought fruit from the preaching and hearing of your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a moment of a lot of words. I had the idea that perhaps a nice dinner would be good. I had to deliver a paper in Washington, D.C., some time ago, and I thought, well, I'm going to drive all the way up there. I'm going to drive all the way back. Let me take my oldest son with me. We could have fellowship in the car, spend the day together. After the event was over, we needed to eat, of course. And so I said, well, we're near Old Town Alexandria. I love Old Town Alexandria. We will find a nice place to grab some dinner there. And we did find a nice place to grab some dinner. The food was great. But as we entered in, the noise was so very loud. There were voices everywhere. In fact, Micah and I had to work very hard to hear one another speaking. The food was lovely, but there were a lot of words. And so in our dinner time, it took us quite a bit of energy, not to eat the food, but to stay focused on the words that we needed to hear versus all of the other words that were around us. You see, as Peter finishes his discussion of these false teachers, he describes them as people with a lot of words. And words that in some sense are very difficult to avoid. Words that promise things. In fact, words that you might leave the conversation of Christ and his scripture and go listen to at the table next to you. Words that require you to work very hard on keeping the Scripture and the Word of God central. You see, brothers and sisters, we live in a world full of words. 
and a world full of words that oftentimes come from false teachers. As Peter finishes his discussion, notice what he says describing these false teachers. We pick up in verse 17 where he says, these. Well, who are the these? Well, they are the false teachers, the false prophets of whom he's spoken for this entire chapter. These are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest. What does this mean? Well, I think Peter is using two different word pictures. Imagine being somewhere and being so desperately thirsty and coming upon a well and rejoicing that there will be water, there will be provision for your thirst only to find out that the well is empty. Or think about planting crops and hoping for rain week in and week out, week in and week out, and see clouds come into the sky and hope and long for the water that will come, only to have those very clouds carried away by the wind and thus the drought remaining. These are how these false teachers are described. Wells without water, clouds carried away by tempest. I guess you could say firstly then, These false teachers give words without truth. We're going to see three aspects as we close this discussion of false teachers this Lord's Day. They provide words without truth. Going back to Peter's image, it seems as though he may have had one of several Old Testament scriptures in mind. Perhaps that passage In Jeremiah 2.13, where we're told that God's people have committed, as it were, two great sins. They've rejected Him, the well of living water, and they've sought to hew out or carve out for themselves cisterns. Boys and girls, a place where you store water. Cisterns that can hold no water. And all of the words surrounding the believers in Peter's day and the generation shortly after he dies are going to be, as it were, living in a world with plenty of words, but words without truth. Notice what Peter says next in verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who actually have escaped from those who live in error. Turn over to a similar passage in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, there we read this. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You see, Paul was concerned about it as well in Ephesus. That there will be words around us, but words that will trip up the believers. Words that will press them off from the truth. And this is why Peter is very concerned that we understand the true doctrine of God's Word and that we guard doctrine. That was Paul's concern as well. But notice in verse 18, after giving these two images, wells without water, clouds carried away by a tempest, he says, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They allure. While their words are empty, they seem so promising. They seem so delightful. Who is it that they are actually alluring or tripping up? 
Peter says, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. These are true believers that Peter now references. Some Greek manuscripts render it this way. They have barely escaped. And the idea there would be that this would be new believers. Now, just to be clear, if a person escapes the wrath of God to come, they don't barely escape. You're either in Christ or you're not. You don't get to heaven by the skin of your teeth because heaven is not attained through your effort, but by the perfect and final sacrifice of the Son of God. But whether it's rendered those who have barely escaped or those who have actually escaped, in both cases, it's believers that are in view. And they're being allured, tempted through these empty words of the false teachers. And notice what he says in verse 17. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? These false teachers who give these empty words are headed towards an eternity without Christ. They're headed to hell, to darkness forever. Peter will say some even more sobering words of them in a few moments. But one biblical commentator and scholar with the last name Big says this, quote, grandiose sophistry is the hook. Filthy lust is the bait with which these men catch those whom the Lord had delivered or was delivering. You see, brothers and sisters, they're full of words, lots of sound waves, lots of noise, but empty words, words without truth. How can we apply this to our lives? Because in one sense, for four weeks now, we've looked at 2 Peter 2. And it may be as simple as saying, well, the application of this entire chapter, we could have just done it in one week, preacher, is let's avoid false teachers. But we've sought to mine each of these sections piece by piece. How do we apply to our lives the idea that there will be many with words around us, but words without truth? Well, here are some potential applications for us. As we've said before, but it's worth saying again, we need to guard doctrine. We need to guard doctrine. You remember what Paul tells his protege, Timothy, that protege in the ministry, the one that he's training up, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, hold fast the pattern of sound words, of doctrine, which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He will go on later to say at the very end of his final letter, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Isn't it interesting that Paul, who had seen the risen Christ, Peter, who had walked with Christ and seen him raised, Both of them, at the end of their ministries, have the concern that there will be words to come that are false teaching. Empty words. So we need to guard doctrine. We need to hold on to the apostolic pattern. How do we do that? Well, certainly we do that through the proper teaching of the Word of God. We do that by remembering that there is a deposit that has been given through the apostles to the church. 
that we are not the first Christians to walk with Christ, that Christianity is not a century-old project, but that we stand on the shoulders of those who for thousands of years have walked with Christ. And so we find value in the saints of old, particularly in the creeds and confessions of the church. Listen, we recited a lengthy creed this morning, the Nicene Creed, written mainly, there's a little amendment to what we read this morning. If you have a question about that, I'd be glad to tell you about it, but mainly in the fourth century. And this creed is really a summary of our faith. It's really the basic summary of our faith. It seems as though in the early church there was a habit of making individuals be catechized before they entered the waters of baptism. And there may indeed be some evidence that creeds were part of that catechism. Listen, what do you believe as you are baptized in the triune name? Do you believe that our God is one God in three? In three in one? Do you believe that you're a sinner, that Christ died for sins? Do you believe in a church and in a resurrection to come? But in guarding doctrine, we need to be a people who are a creedal people, a people who understand that the Bible is not 66 random books thrown together, but that there is a pattern of doctrine. Confessions, of course, are helpful. We've mentioned that. We won't labor that here. But our church holds to a lengthy confession of faith. We publish for the world to see this is what we confess. This is what the teaching of the church will be in accord with. Here it is. But you know, another way to apply this chapter and this section of individuals coming into the church who give a lot of words, but words without truth, is that we need to guard teachers. We need to guard teachers. Not only do we need to guard doctrine, but we need to guard teachers. Now you remember, perhaps... What James says, James chapter 3, interestingly, in a discussion about speech, about a lot of words, about the tongue, James says this, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Well, that's sobering. We live in a day, brothers and sisters, where every single person who is interested in theology wants to be a teacher, where the very word which that theology come from says, many of you should not be teachers. Why? Because the teaching of the word of God, the teaching of doctrine, is a work that is accompanied by a stricter judgment. Don't be quick to be a teacher of the word of God, James says. Of course, what is not meant here is leading your family in prayer, leading your family in family worship. The gathering of saints together under the auspices of the church to teach, that should be held very closely and guardedly. We ought to test individuals who are teaching. Do the individuals that teach have any connection to the church or to the elders? You know, one of the encouraging signs that I've seen of brothers in our church thinking through this is occasionally men in our church will find themselves having boxes of extra books. I remember one brother coming to me and asking, not so much for permission, 
but asking me, hey, I, I want to hand these out. They're extra, but I want to make sure they're okay with you or with the elders of the church. Now, many of you might say, well, that's kind of going a little far, isn't it? But this brother's intent was, I want to make sure that you know, as one who has to guard the teaching of the church, the kinds of things that I'm passing out in this church. Another brother came to me one time and said to me, hey, I know I was handing something out. I wanted you to know it was just between one or two people. I didn't want you to think that I was going on a literature campaign. And I was so encouraged by this because the intent behind both of these men in separate instances was, hey, you are charged by Christ according to his will sought in the mind of this congregation as an elder to guard the teaching. So I want to make sure that in every way possible, it's not looking like I'm being subversive. And of course, the material that both of these men had in view was great material. But we want to be aware that if Peter spends an entire chapter shortly before his death talking about how false teachers will come, that we ought to be people who consider the guarding of doctrine, whatever that looks like practically in each generation, and the guarding of teaching and teachers to be something that we consider as important, valuable. They are the false teachers, that is, words without truth. And brothers and sisters, just like my son and I had to work hard to listen to one another in that restaurant, in the contemporary Christian scene, we will have to work hard to listen to what is true from what is false. There will be voices all around us. Firstly then, these teachers who have a lot to say offer words without truth. But secondly, they offer promises without freedom. Promises without freedom. Look at verse 19. While they promise them, that is these new believers or these Christians, true believers, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Peter is saying they, they promise liberty, but their version of liberty is liberty to sin. Here we're getting a little bit of the content of their false teaching. They're promising liberty, but it's liberty to sin. Somehow their teaching involved, as we've seen already, a discussion about how because of the work of Christ, there is freedom to sin. And particularly, freedom in the face of the fact that it's likely that Christ will not return in the way that you've heard him say. So they offer promises. The good Christian life. The life of Christian liberty. But they mean liberty to sin. What is Christian liberty? We believe in it. We have an entire chapter in our church's statement of faith on Christian liberty. What is that? Well, Christian liberty is liberty that means one is free from the control of sin and from man-made doctrines in that order, particularly. See, these false teachers were offering a liberty, but it wasn't a liberty that was in view in apostolic teaching, in Scripture. In fact, it seems as though maybe later Peter will make reference of how they are twisting the words of the apostles. Look at the very end of this letter, Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16, 
There Peter writes this, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. We'll see when we get there in a few Lord's days, Lord willing, that here we have Peter saying the writings of Paul are Scripture. But firstly, notice what's happening. Some commentators think that Peter is referencing the twisting of Paul's writings. What are a lot of the things that Paul wrote? The bold grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think of the book of Romans. Think of the book of Galatians. Now, we don't have all that's in view in Peter's mind, and we don't need it, but it seems as though his chief example of twisting may have to do with twisting the writings of one who writes boldly about God's grace. And yet, wasn't it Paul in Romans chapter 6 who said, sin will not have dominion over you? You see, any talk of grace divorced from the fact that True grace actually, by God's Spirit, frees you from the dominion of sin. Is not the grace envisioned by Scripture. Peter will say, whatever controls you is your master. What a sobering phrase. These individuals are controlled by sin. They're promising a kind of liberty in their empty words. But they're people who are ensnared. And don't realize it. The Puritan Matthew Poole on this passage says this, quote, These false teachers that talked so much of Christian liberty, yet being overcome by their own lusts, and kept under by them, were the worst of slaves. You see, in Peter's thoughts, these individuals had lots to say, but they offered words without truth, And they offered promises without freedom. How do we apply this, brothers and sisters? How do we import this in our lives and act upon it? Well, as it relates to receiving promises without freedom, we need to understand that Christian liberty is the freedom we have from the guilt and reign of sin. Sin is no longer your master. And this was purchased by Christ. Listen, beloved, I hesitate to jump over to Romans or other texts and preach a separate sermon, but you need to understand that when Jesus Christ died for you, he died to free you from the penalty of sin, but from the reign of sin in your life. But if you or if I think that liberty is where I get to live how I want, then we've misunderstood liberty, which means we've misunderstood the work of Christ. Listen, Christ was bent on the glory of God, but he was also bent on your soul being freed from the corruption of sin. Romans 6.18. Here's what our corporate confession of faith says about Christian liberty. This is the second London confession of faith, chapter 21, paragraph 3. Quote, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, 
as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Did you, did you catch what was written there? It's almost as if the writers of our confession knew of Second Peter. <laughs> they did. Those who, upon pretense of Christian liberty... Say, because of the liberty purchased for me in Christ, I can now cherish this hidden sin or this open sin, as we see in this letter. They completely destroy the entire foundation of the grace of God. Well, how do we know what sin is and what sin isn't? I would submit to you that we need to understand the moral law of God. We read it here regularly. Many weeks summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. But we need to do two things with the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. On the one hand, we need to take our lives and sift them through God's holy and righteous law. We need to regularly ask, where are there other gods? Where is there false worship? Where is there a lack of reverence for God? Where is there a disregard for the rhythm that God has given me for my life and his day? Where do I shirk off authority and hate with a murderous heart? Where is there adultery with my body or with my mind? Where is there a hatred of the property of others? Where is there a lack of truth and a heart full of covetousness? We need to sift our lives against that. But we also now have a freedom to sift the teachings of others through the law. Brothers and sisters, some of us came out of very legalistic traditions where we threw off, on the one hand, God's law. Well, the Ten Commandments is Old Testament stuff. But you know what happens when you throw off God's law? You invent laws. So the Ten Commandments of many of our legalistic churches were don't dance, don't drink, and don't use tobacco. Quite frankly, none of which find an origin in the Scriptures. See, the law of God not only helps us as we seek to obey God and to understand where we need to repent of sin, it also helps us to know what true Christian liberty is. We're not bound by man's law, but by God's law as those who are now free for the first time to take it up in our hands and say, Lord, you saved me. I want to honor your law. By your spirit, give me a desire for holiness. You want to know what pursuing holiness is? Take up the ten words. Pray that God would give you repentance. Pray that God would give you a heart to desire to obey increasingly. You see, these false teachers were giving promises without this freedom. You're free in Christ to love sin. You're free in Christ to cherish hidden sins and iniquity. And... Peter says that they are slaves of corruption and they are trying to allure others in that way. So there's a lot that they have to say, these false teachers, but their words without truth and their promises without freedom. But lastly, as we analyze their words, they offer religion without perseverance. 
And this really is weighty and quite frankly sobering. Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 24, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now, brothers and sisters, I know time is short, but think for a moment about the weight of the next verse. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, here there's the offering of religion without perseverance. These verses describe false converts and those who apostatize. Verse 20, they initially come to Christ and perhaps even find some kind of remedy against sin. Listen, friend, it's very possible for you to come into a church like this and to be encouraged by the smiles and the handshakes, and there are plenty here. You might even find acceptance for the first time People will sit down and talk with you. And you begin to think, I like these people. I like this Christian thing. And you hear that people are working to put down sin. So you start to do that. Not because Christ has become your Savior, but because of the influence that you see around you. You hear the word preached. You hear me preach a sermon. You're like, well, the Ten Commandments. Sure, let let me do that. You know what? I'm not going to commit adultery this week. It's possible to be attached to the people of Christ and to have initial victory against some outward sins. But you see, there's no perseverance in these false teachers, these false converts, those who are led astray. They even look converted at times. But notice what is said of them For if after they have escaped the pollutions of this world, there's this initial kind of change. Interestingly enough, at the very beginning of the letter, Peter says this, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, that one of the descriptors of Christian conversion is, quote, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Individuals who look like they're on the right path. But these two weighty verses say that the latter place is worse because now not only are they living headlong in their sins, but they are sinning against the knowledge they have received of Christ. Peter says, They turn from the holy commandment. Now, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that the word holy commandment is meant the gospel. I know when we hear the word gospel, we think, well, the gospel is not a commandment. It's not what we do. But actually, Peter and Paul, in various instances in the New Testament, call the gospel a command. They don't mean that we save ourselves. They mean that the gospel is given to us, and we are commanded to receive it, to believe on Christ, to turn from sin, and to embrace him through the truth of the gospel. So these individuals have done what? They've turned from the gospel. They may even have believed that they were once in the gospel, but they turn away. And Peter says very soberly, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Listen, brothers and sisters, some of you sitting here 
have heard literally thousands of Christian sermons. Perhaps many of them good and solid. Boys and girls, some of you will live your entire life going to church. And unlike many in this room, you're growing up sitting under the preaching of the word of Christ. It is worse sin for you to fall headlong into sins and sin against all of the knowledge of the grace offered to you in Christ than for someone who's never heard the name of Christ in a far-off people group somewhere. We are commanded to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there will be some on that great day who not only refused Christ, but they sat under the preaching and offer of Christ year after year after year, and they continued to reject Christ. There will be some on that great day who will be judged not only for being outside of Christ, but the weight of that judgment will be even more piercing because they rejected Christ in whom they once professed. They were lowered in the waters of baptism. They convinced a group of elders that they knew Christ, but they didn't know Christ. Brothers and sisters, boldly from this pulpit, we often preach that assurance of salvation is possible. We boldly preach that you can know that you are a Christian. First John, we boldly say that Christ will receive any who come to him. But let us be as bold in this. Are you truly converted? Are you converted? Do you know Christ? Do you actually have the movements of the Spirit in your soul? Do you actually find yourself convicted of sin when no one else is looking? When no one else will know? So that you're not worshiping the God of the opinions of others. You actually find yourself desiring, at times, even though it's cold and then it gets warm and then it may get cold again, desiring communion with Christ. To spend time with Him in prayer. Or, have you found yourself allured by the world while still attending church? It's very possible to do. It's very possible. In his famous work, Practical Religion, J.C. Ryle writing about 150 years ago that bishop of the Church of England, although a Puritan-like bishop, in the first essay describes ten different ways that we can inquire into the state of our souls. But he begins the essay by saying that in his day in England, never was there more opportunity to hear sermons of Christ, to read books of Christ. Brothers and sisters, there was no internet. There was no sermon audio. There was no ligonier or whatever else it is that we have access to in our day. But then he begins to say that there are many who have gotten very excited about the initial prospects of theology and religion. But the zeal is not a zeal of quiet trust in Christ that will lead to a lifelong living out of the call of Christ. Do we not live in a similar day? So I ask us, do we have a religion, but a religion that will not persevere? Peter gives a proverb, doesn't he? Verse 22. 
He initially turns to Proverbs 26.11, practically quotes it here. He says, but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Boys and girls, have you ever washed your puppy dog? Or washed a farm animal? It won't be long before that animal is back in the mud. Have you ever observed a dog, and I won't be gross here, but sometimes there's a good thing that the dog does. It eats something that it's not supposed to eat, so what does it do? It gets rid of it. It throws it up. That's good. That's by God's design. But then what does Peter say? What does the wisdom writer of Proverbs say? Oftentimes, a dog will return back to what? The very thing that it had to get rid of. And this is a picture, it's a very stark picture of these false teachers and of those who are led astray, who leave the Christian faith by their words. They had some initial movement, seemingly, of change. Maybe they even expelled certain sins from their life. But they've gone right back to it. And Peter says soberly, these are Peter's words, not mine. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So lots of words, but words without truth, promises without freedom, religion without perseverance. That's how Peter ends this chapter We sit in a world full of words, but it will take work, brothers and sisters, for us to continue to hear the true words that we need. Now, as we close, let me speak to those of you who have wandered in. Perhaps you are that one who has found an initial interest in the things of Christ. You like his people. You like gathering It seems interesting to you to reform yourself, to try to do better, to try to be better. When Peter talks about the holy commandment, this takes us all the way back to his first few words. He means the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are all lost in our sins. The scripture says that we are dead spiritually in them, but that The triune God has sent his son to be the savior of all who will come to him. There is not a sinner that cannot be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that is too great for the blood of Christ to wash it away. There is no amount of spiritual doubt that nullifies the words of Christ when he says, if you come to me, I will take you. But as Ryle says in that essay which I mentioned earlier, you have to come on Christ's terms because they're the only terms which save. You don't get to add Jesus to your own personal reform. You have to completely and solely rest on Christ and that is the last thing that any of us want to do in our natural state. You have to fling yourself onto Christ and let Him do all of the saving, all of the washing, all of the curing for your sins. It must be Christ alone or not Christ at all. And if you don't have Christ, 
then you don't have a righteousness to stand before the throne of God. You don't have an atonement for your sins. And you will be separated from God for all of eternity. So this weighty, sobering question of, are you really a Christian, is actually a biblical question. Do you know Christ? Are you leaning on Him? Don't look back to the day that you prayed a prayer. Ask yourself now, am I resting on Christ alone? Do I believe that He has received me simply because He said that He would, and I've come to Him, a wicked sinner who needs His blood to cleanse me? Or am I religious? Am I a good person when compared to the rest of the human people I see around me? I've done good things in my life. I've added a little religion. I even sing now when you Christians sing. Is that your hope? Because sooner or later, now or if you live long enough, you will be, I don't mean to be insulting, but you will be the dog of Peter's proverb. You will return to the ways in which you lived. But when Christ gets a hold of you, even your own wrestlings with sin are just that. You feel the wrestlings and the weight of loving sin but hating it. Loving sin but hating it. Seeing victory over some sin and then seeing more sin in your life and being discouraged when you see it. And this is your life. For 10, 20, 30, 60 years. And then you fall asleep one night. And you don't wake up the next morning. Rather, you wake up in the presence of King Jesus. And the struggle is gone. No more are you wrestling with the flesh. No more is there the temptation to be the dog that returns to the vomit. Because your Savior, the prize, is in front of you. And you are whole and complete, awaiting the resurrection when you will be glorified. When for all of eternity, you will mine the riches as with the angels of the glorious gospel of the Son of God. Are you converted? And are you working hard by His grace to listen to His word when there are voices all around you? Let's pray. Living God, help us to rightly assess our state before you. And there's only one name that ought to flood our minds when we do that assessing. Is it Christ? Help any here who thought they were converted but realize they're not to fly to Jesus, to embrace him with the arms of faith. Help those wrestling with sin to find the comfort of Christ who will not break off a bruised reed. That when they see the struggle with sin, help them to hate the sin but even rejoice that the struggle is there. Lord, help your saints. In Jesus' name, amen.